0: And thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 397, interview with Ian McGregor about his book, The Lighthouse of Stalingrad. Publisher, historian, author, and public speaker Ian McGregor has just released a history of the Battle of Stalingrad, but with new Russian sources never seen before in the West. If you are new to the Battle of Stalingrad, this is an excellent single source. Mr. McGregor, thank you very much for being with us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely, I just recently uh, finished your book. The emotions are still reeling. I feel claustrophobic, afraid, and excited all at the same time. I, I don't know if that's a standard uh, reaction to your book, but uh, oh, just we'll, we'll get into it. But uh, again, it was just an amazing story, and it was well told. Thank you for that. Great. So let's yeah, let's jump into this. So I've seen pictures of you in Russia. It was 18 degrees below zero, but you were smiling. I guess maybe you were just so numb you couldn't tell at that point. But I was wondering if your travels to Russia inspired this book, or did the idea for this come from something else?
1: Uh, Well, originally, uh, I've always, as a as a kid, uh, I think the first time I heard the word Stalingrad and knew what the battle was, I was nine years old reading uh, an illustrated history book for schoolchildren. Right. And that fascinated me. But then I was very lucky, uh, fast forwarding to when I was a teenager, back in the early 80s, I was very lucky that I had, a, I suppose, a progressive, forward-thinking uh, father and, and mum, but mainly my dad, Mm -hmm. He sent me, I I, I did camping trips to East Germany, uh, in the late seventies. And then in the early eighties, I did a student, uh, trip to, uh, the Baltic, but Russia. And Mm I ended up in Leningrad and that was when I was 13 and that was amazing. That was an eye opener. That was 1981. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it was incredible. And it was still quite, I would say, uh, 19, it seemed like late 1940s, people were dressed that way to a large degree. There was lots of uh, diesel cars and trucks, a lot of American made drugs, by the way, uh, from Lend-Lease, I suppose, a fallout from that. But then, uh, and that just gave me a love of of Central and Eastern European history. And that's what I studied for, you know, through high school, through university, my degree was in History. Uh, my dissertation was on the Prague Spring in the 1960s in Czechoslovakia, uh, and then I've been lucky all my all my years as a publisher uh, for the last 30 years. I've published a lot of books oh, on me. Europe, uh, commercial books for you know normal normal reading that you would buy in uh, uh, bookshops. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, obviously, the Great Patriotic War. So those photos you saw of me in Russia, yeah, that was that was <laughs> two, about two, roughly about two years ago. Uh, now it was late November, uh, early December, and yeah, wow. it was like minus eighteen. Uh, but if you've studied, if you've studied the uh, the Battle of Stalingrad, and you've studied uh, Russia and Eastern Europe during. What's called the Great Patriotic War, so the war from twenty second of June forty one right through to the end of the Second World War and Hitler's defeat. Mm-hmm. Uh, to go there and to go to these cities that you've read about constantly over the years uh, as a historian, yeah, I mean right. it, it's uh, you're a, you know you're you're a very very happy person.
0: I, I completely understand that. I've taken I've dragged my family to several Civil War sites here in the states and. And um, yeah, it's amazing to just stand there where, where you know, incredible things happened, bravery and, and whatnot, and my family just kind of looks at me and they're like, why are you smiling? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I can't explain that. So, but yeah. yeah, it's great to be able to traverse the same grounds as these yeah. people who did amazing things.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, I, I love the, uh, I've got a real passion for the American civil war as well. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I've, I've been to a few sites like Antietam. It's just incredible.
0: Yes. So if I could, for my next question, this is going to sound very obvious, but what is the lighthouse in the title of your book?
1: Yeah, it sounds mysterious, but it was a a code name. So Mm -hmm. one of the, the, if basically, uh, to give your readers an idea, uh, obviously to Russians and Russians today, uh, which is what I talk about in the book, and throughout the Cold War preceding that, their victory, their sacrifice and victory in the uh, the Great Patriotic War, and I don't just mean Russians, I mean all the ethnic groups from all the 15 or 16 republics that fought within the Red Army during the Second World War, their victory still resonates today, as, a, as a, I'm sure it does, you know, uh, what the American army or armed forces did in the Pacific and the European theatres in the Second World War, and to what British forces did in Europe and elsewhere. I mean, everyone's got their own touchstones. Right. So it's huge. It's huge for them. It, it's, it's almost what their modern day society is built on, and, and someone like Putin's come along and he's really stoking it for all it's worth. But mm-hmm. within that, the umbrella of that, the one the one of the biggest pillars that supports all of that is their victory. Their first proper victory over the, the Nazi war machine was at Stalingrad. And yeah. then within the battle of Stalingrad itself, there's lots of heroic battles because, as I say in the book, it's the biggest military battle in history. Uh, millions of combatants, millions of uh, hundreds of thousands, I should say, of, of 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 dead. Right. But within that is this one house. Uh, its code name was the Lighthouse, but to Russians, it's and a lot of historians and people who are really into the Battle of Stalingrad and read about it, it's called mm-hmm. Pavlov's House. Mm. And okay. that's and so it's this typical house represents the sacrifice and heroism of this famous fighting that's renowned for Stalingrad of uh, fighting house by house brutal urban combat floor by floor room by room cellar by cellar that's that's what's typical of when we think of the Battle of Stalingrad and and the vicious hand to hand fighting that was there mm-hmm. and Pavlov's house is one of the famous buildings. That if you're Russian, you taught this at school. It's it's almost like the Magnificent Seven. Uh, (laughs) It's this band of heroic, uh, uh, almost in in a lot of forms illiterate Russian peasants. Mm a platoon of them held this massive house, four-story house, and it was called the lighthouse because if you stood on the the top of the house, what was left of it anyway, it gave an amazing 360-degree view of the battlefield, five kilometers in any direction. So both sides wanted it, and it was in the middle of No Man's land. Right. Uh, And they held out for 58 days against the might of a whole German division that was determined to recapture it. So it's like I said, it's very much like a cross between this magnificent seven and the Alamo to your leaders. (laughs) And it really is, it really is. And so yeah. a big part of my book is saying, well, I've gone to all the records in in the city of Stalingrad, now called Volgograd, and I've read lots mm-hmm. of testimonies, hundreds of them. And it, it, it is actually uh, uh, a huge embellishment on what actually happened to the point of where it's almost, uh, 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 it's propaganda.
0: Right, it becomes a myth in, yeah. in the fog, yeah. yeah. So I'm going to try, because... I loved the book and we'll we'll get into the details, but and I'm going to try very hard not to, to ruin it for the readers. But you go into detail about the science of urban warfare as, you know, the Germans were doing amazing things the previous year, but that was out in the open. This is a city. The Russians have got to develop some kind of science of urban warfare and they do. And, you know, it gets developed here. Um but you also, and I, and I won't ruin that for the readers. I really want them to, to capture the learning, the learning curve, if yeah. you will. But I did find interesting the different nationalities uh yeah. that again you you go into that in the detail and i wanted to ask was having all these different nationalities help defend stalingrad because that's a great propagand propaganda uh tool how would you not want to use that but was that planned or was it more just there was so many people so many soldiers pulled to this region because stalingrad could not fall that they just happened to be made up of many different nationalities
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it wasn't a, a, a plan in place that they were going to have uh, ethnic right. representation of most of the republics within the battle. Mm-hmm. But when you've got millions of troops, and it wasn't just a fight for the city. It's 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 called the Stalingrad Front. It was hundreds of kilometers right. long. You got vast mm-hmm. armies, armoured and infantry groups, and obviously. Hundreds and hundreds of, of aircraft on both sides. But 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 primarily the Germans did dominate the the the, the, the skies over the city for right. a three or four months of the five-month-long battle. But yeah, what it was was we're deep inside southern Russia. Mm-hmm. In the, the the whole summer offensive, which was called Case Blau, which has started uh late June 42, had caught Stalin. Off guard or off balance, I should say, and his planners—they were fully expecting that Hitler's forces would try and replicate what they tried the year before with Operation Barbarossa, where they were they were going to plow straight through the centre of uh, the European side of Russia and obviously capture the capital, Moscow, which was mm-hmm. the communication centre. Uh, and they thought that would be a good blow, as Napoleon had done it. It might knock out the country, but obviously it was proving hugely difficult. And that's a different book, but. Hitler had massively right. massively, massively uh, underappreciated how hard the Russians or the Soviets would fight. And the manpower pool that they were able to call upon, even though within the year one, he'd, he'd taken over 6 million Soviet troops out of the equation off the battlefield, 3.1 wow. million killed, 3 million captured. he's mm-hmm. uh, thinking that the rotten edifice is ready to fall. But to get back to your question, Yeah, with the summer offensive catching Stalin off guard going south... There were units that were eventually tracking because a, a, a huge armies was protecting Moscow. They they were, in part, some of them uh, in echelon coming down to meet the, this new German threat that was going to mm. potentially split the country in two and capture the oil fields in the, in the Caucasus. Right. So what they were doing was to. To shore up the defense in the south that would ultimately lead to the big city on the Volga, which was Stalingrad, they were grabbing troops in the local area. And so a lot of those troops were obviously local to that area, to southern Mm -hmm. Russia. So that's where you've got these ethnic groups like Chechens, Tatars, uh, Tajiks. Uh, they they were there anyway because they, they that's that's where they were from and they were from uh, locally raised regiments and divisions that were there. but then right. other regiments and divisions that were coming down that would obviously be going into the meat grinder that would be Stalingrad during this bitter battle mm-hmm. yeah they came from everywhere so you've got si- right. the Siberian divisions, all that kind of you know famously you've got those those guys there as well. so yeah it was it was a melting pot of ethnic groups that were on one side with the Red Army, but on the other side with the German 6th Army, you've got a whole hodgepodge of groups there as well. You've got uh, some Croatian, well, you've got a Croatian regiment there. You've got Hungarians, some Italians. But, I mean, these guys were out on the flanks, but some of them were in the city towards the end. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Romanians. Uh, So, yeah, it was a, a battle of nations,
0: Right. Well, for an area or territory this big, you would need the resources of several nations just to make it happen. I'm glad you brought up the oil because in the book you you do a uh, you do a great job of explaining kind of Hitler's thinking. Like uh, Pearl Harbor comes along, the Americans are now in the war, and so this isn't just a military conflict. This is an industrial based military conflict. Um, Hitler knows he's going to need oil, and he needs to deprive it of his enemy, uh, Stalin. And so I guess the idea is to go down to the Caucasus, take the oil there, start to ship it back to, to Germany, but at the same time, deny it to Stalin. But at first, in order to secure that route, they have to secure Stalin, Stalingrad, it's on the it's on the river there. And so th- the setup is brilliant it makes sense but hitler is very very far away and his german and his generals can see a more detailed nuanced picture because they're having to fight and lose a lot of men just to keep moving forward so let's get this battle going so uh we've all been you know those of us who are into world war 2 we've all you know experienced or read part of mein kampf we know that hitler hates the slavic race he hates the jews he hates communism and he he's going to come Personally, to hate Stalin. But I wanted to ask, so setting this up, what is Hitler's larger goal with Operation Barbarossa? And what specifically is he trying to uh, accomplish by taking Stalingrad, I guess, besides the fact that it's named after the Soviet leader?
1: Well, I mean, Stalingrad, I mean, I'll, I'll track back, but the, yeah. the the bigger picture, as you just said, was mm-hmm. the whole point of this new summer offensive, which wasn't on the same scale as the year before because he didn't have the men or machinery right. or material. They'd, they'd lost over a million men in the line, a, a vast majority of whom had been uh, invalided out with frostbite from the Russian winter mm-hmm. that year, which had caught them by surprise, obviously, uh, which a lot of your listeners will know. Uh, but this mm-hmm. move was yeah as you said by that christmas or you know as we're getting into the new year of 1942 hitler's joined imperial japan his 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 ally and declared war on the united states so instead of just a continental european war that he's involved in he's 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 got the he's got the united kingdom britain bottled up uh, on its island uh, right. he's in control of continental europe uh, and he's made the mistake of obviously invading Russia, thinking he could knock it out in seven or eight weeks in the summer of 41, that hasn't worked. But this is a kind of... Uh, he's basically got to make sure, as you just said, he's got the the means and the materiel uh, to feed his war machine. He still hasn't yet got Nazi Germany on the kind of war economy that uh, Stalin would do instantly. Or within right. Right of, of the war starting in, in Russia. He instantly got, you know, the whole country was geared to war. Everything was everything else was put aside. Didn't yeah. care about human rights or or uh, social mobility or whether you've got enough right. food to eat, you don't have to queue for ration, all that kind of stuff. Germany still had a bit of that. He they weren't on that total war footing, but he knew he needed oil, or as you said as well, is to deny the Soviets their own oil in the Caucasus. I mean, it was a hugely, hugely ambitious, overly ambitious uh, plan to think mm-hmm. that with less men than he had for Barbarossa, uh, not knowing exactly, I mean, this is the thing, as what I say in the book, not knowing exactly how many of the enemy he still had to face. He had no yes. idea about the millions that were coming to the call-ups and being mobilized. I mean, the, the Russians would go through, I mean, they'd rebuild their army five times in throughout the whole war. Wow. You know, it's suffering huge casualties, but they still had the manpower pool. And Hitler just didn't believe this this could be happening. Right it was ambitious. Uh, I would argue, and a lot of his generals would argue, and he fired most of them that did argue this, that they just did not have the the men or the materiel to take such a huge t- tranche of land as the Caucasus, you know, well mm. over 1,500 kilometers long, uh, probably 2,000 by the time he gets to the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. And also, he didn't have the, the, the technical teams or the technical ability in terms of uh, transportation. Even when he seized the oil, Yeah, probably blow, and they did, they would blow up a lot of the, uh, the, the oil bases. He didn't have the teams that could actually turn this around and fix it quickly to then transport the oil back to where it needed to go. So again, there was there was a lot of amazing plans to think this is what we're going to do as a battering ram to get into the country and seize the oil fields. But there hadn't been much thought about, right, this is how we're going to actually transport it and then defend it against any sudden Russian counterattacks. Right.
0: Now, um, you make an excellent point. I don't have the stats in front of me from your book, but even though Hitler did not was not able to achieve all that he wanted, what he was able to deny Stalin. I mean, you mentioned the tons of grain, the percentage of grain, uh, the percentage of oil and other things. I mean, he did, you could almost say tie one of Stalin's hands behind his back, but there was just so many people, men, to call on. I mean, and there's a famous, um, I don't have in front of me either, I apologize, there's a famous line where Hitler says, if I had known how many people or reserves he could have called on, I never would have, you know, but the arrogance, you know, National Socialist is better than any other form of government, therefore we cannot fail because we produce better people, better warriors than everyone
1: else. Yeah, I mean, that, that was the thing, he refused, Hitler refused to believe that uh wait he 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 refused to believe in the fighting ability of yes the the red army itself and yeah i suppose the victories that they'd had in the first summer were Mm -hmm. to a degree repeated not 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 in the size of prisoners that they would catch when the uh, offensive started in 42 but they did fall back against the german Typical tactics, you know, combined arms, blitzkrieg, it mm-hmm. it, it did succeed. And and because they, they didn't have the strength of numbers in defense, because they were, they'd spread across the whole frontier, protecting, you know, from Leningrad, all the way down to Moscow, all the way down to the Philippines, right. they had to protect that frontier. Stalin was expecting the main push to be at the center, and that's where the bulk of the troops were. He still thought he had enough in the south to protect against anything else but he just didn't realize that Hitler would be rolling the dice and stripping some of army group north and center to go into army group south to then give him superiority in arms. And that's what happens. But because he's pushing the Russians back, it reinforces his belief that, uh, no, they can't be clever enough to have cottoned on to the fact Uh, that they shouldn't stand and fight and they should retreat in good order to save themselves. And because his commanders aren't reporting that they're capturing these huge numbers of troops they had the year before, he thinks, well, they haven't got an army. That's why. Yeah, I'm taking it. That's why he makes the hubristic uh, mistake uh, in late July of where he he splits Army Group South in two and he wants to capture everything in one go. So Army, Mm -hmm. Army Group A will continue the big push instead of being on mass army group south pushing down to the south once they've secured the volga he'll split the army half of it will go into the south to capture the oil fields and the other half army group b which comprises obviously sixth army that's going to push to the volga because because as you said at the beginning one of the plans was stalingrad was never a key key uh target as it would be by se- that September at the beginning of the dif- offensive it was strategically important to either besiege the city as they had like Leningrad in the north but it was mainly to stop River traffic along the Volga which is very much as you said like it's like the Mississippi it's an arterial waterway it was a key by right. route for for the Soviets themselves coming down from the north, but a lot of lend-lease coming from the Allies was going up from the oh. up from the, the Volga as well. So the, the, the Germans knew they had to stop that and they had to block river traffic, but it also protected their eastern flank. While the bulk of the army should have gone south to then capture the oil fields, but that's where they got drawn into this this huge battle for the city.
0: That's And isn't that – that's one of the – when you were talking, I just realized that was one of the great ironies of the war is that the very giant expanse that Stalin is trying to protect at the beginning of Operation Barbarossa is hurting it because you can't protect all that much territory. Conversely, once uh, the the, uh, Axis forces start driving in, the area is just too big. You don't have enough men. So it hurts Stalin at first. Yeah. Then it hurts Hitler later, and of course that—that's what matters is how it ends. But I'm—if I could, real quick—I'm really? sorry. I'm looking at a map. I'm looking at the maps in your book, and I'm like—and I'm like, there's—there's there's no way. I mean, I'm not—you know—I'm not in the military. I'm not a fighter. But I'm—the the distance is too vast. The—the—the uh, the, the roads and the rail are, are not conducive for uh, for what the Germans need, and they need tons of supplies every day. How is this possibly? going to work.
1: Well, that, that's where the Luftwaffe came in, because the one uh, they, that's the one thing that Army Group South and the whole offensive had in its favor was aerial yeah. superiority. And so, again, like they had with their infantry and motorized units, where they'd stripped some of them from Army Group North and Army Group Center, and, and they'd gone down to Army Group South for this new offensive, they mm-hmm. did exactly the same with the Luftwaffe. So they had a very, very strong arm. Of uh, ground attack bombers and obviously dive bombers, Stukas uh, and, and and fighters, and it would be them that would lead the way or pave the way for the offensive to begin. And then over the coming weeks of that summer, they they basically did shoot the the, the Soviet air force and southern Russia out of the sky, and right. that's why they were able to dominate not only the Battle of Stalingrad for the first couple of months before winter really set in above the city. But that's what kept, it was a Luftwaffe that kept the motorized units running because as you said, logistically Southern Russia was quite backward in terms of not many uh, railway uh, lines that could connect Army Group South's units as it was spread out throughout the Caucasus over hundreds and hundreds of kilometers uh, north, south, east and west. Mm -hmm. So it would be aircraft that would be landing on just made or just laid improvised airfields that would be bringing the fuel for the tanks and and the and the armored units to to carry on with their thrust, but the whole of that summer, uh, the underpinning weakness of the whole offensive was its lack of fuel. Right. So it lost precious days and weeks in terms of units just sitting waiting to be uh, restocked with this. Precious fuel that would allow them to keep the momentum up and that that's that's what ground them to a halt and that it did allow time for Red Army mm-hmm. units to then escape into the vastness of the step Russian step behind them. Right.
0: That's a, I have to tell you this. This is uh, try not to laugh at me too much, but when when I when I'm about to do an interview, if if it's at all, if it's available, I like to get the audio book as well. I walk the dog, I listen to the book. One time, I'm sitting on the porch, I'm smoking a cigar, and I'm listening to your book, and I literally scream out, "Where's the Russian Air Force? Oh my God, you're killing you know whatever!" And I start like I like my screaming is going to change anything. My wife happens to be walking by, and she's just like what is wrong with you stay (laughs) calm you know this happened 80 or whatever years ago but when i got to that part of your book i think you mentioned the figure 1000 planes that the germans had uh and then i think the soviets at some point at the early on before they were shot out of the sky had 400 planes i mean you're right that was the germans ace it's going to serve them well but as we're going to see it's not enough you can dominate the air all you want but it's boots on the ground yeah. at the end of the day that that make the difference. Well,
1: and also you've got to remember that uh, mm-hmm. the the Russian or the Soviet—I should say Soviet—because obviously it's right. It's like it's many ethnic groups within the armed forces. For Good them. point. But uh, you've got to remember the casualties they suffered in pilots uh, in the first year of the war through Barbarossa, oh, yeah. through the the Soviet counterattack that winter. They, 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 they'd lost hundreds and hundreds of veteran pilots. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the Western Soviet Air Force had been destroyed on the ground at the start of Barbarossa. And then the new units coming through uh, tried their best, but they're, they're, they're overwhelmed. And the same mm-hmm. was, basically, history was repeating itself in the summer of '42, where you've got newly trained uh, uh, pilots and, and mm-hmm. Soviet formations trying to take on these veteran Luftwaffe units and just coming unstuck and getting shot down. And that, that's what happened. And to the point where, again, because they were so outgunned, in some cases they would suicidally just ram German formations in the sky if they could get close enough.
0: Oh, the, the bravery. I, I, I lost count of the number of sacrifices on both both sides but certainly the soviets i lost count just as like as long as i can take one of them with me yeah. you know i've done my duty so um Oh, and you and I can appreciate how long it truly takes to train someone to be ready for, not just to fly a plane, but actual combat. That's a whole nother level. Yeah. There's just only so many hours. And so, yeah, they uh, that makes sense why the Germans were able to dominate the air and it did serve them well early on in the war. Mm-hmm. So we've got General Paulus, we've got the Sixth Army, they're heading towards Stalingrad because that's his that's his latest assignment that he's been given. But we're starting to see a pattern here. We already know that up north in Leningrad, Even though things are horrible, Leningrad is holding out. Even though things were pretty dicey, Uh, In in, uh, the first winter of Barbarossa, uh, Moscow was holding out. And now it's going to be Stalingrad's chance to be able to prove their worth. So could you give us a description of what Stalingrad was like as the Wehrmacht is coming in to take it over?
1: Yeah, but it's coming. Yeah, it's coming in from uh, multiple directions. uh, Thank you. Yes. From the north, from the center and then from the south as well. It comes from the south. Uh, uh, that's uh, fourth Panzer Army, beca- basically because the offensive in the Caucasus is, is grinding to a slow, almost embarrassing halt, primarily because of Russian resistance. They're putting up a good fight, but mm-hmm. as you said, it's the length of the the, the line of resistance as well. You, you're talking hundreds and hundreds of kilometers. This this army, German army, spread across trying to trying to conquer this territory, uh, right. and and the fuel issues like, that we talked about. So, because he knows he's not going to take uh, the the main objectives of Case Blau, I'm not going to be met. He know Hitler knows this by mid August. I would say uh, mm-hmm. that he thinks, well, I need to to to. Uh, to actually give me something that's tangible that I have to show the German people that makes up for these losses we've suffered. Because they had, they'd suffered. Right. The, the, the Soviets had put up a hard fight and the and the, 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 the army group south were taking a lot of casualties. Uh, mm-hmm. So he has to have something. So that's why he went for Stalingrad. He said, OK, we're going to stop river traffic on the Volga and we are actually going to take Stalin city. Now, Stalin's city had actually been named zaritsyn uh, in right. the Zars times, imperial czar's uh, times, I should say. Uh, it'd been there since the Middle Ages. It, it was one of those places, you know, the, the Volga runs for well over uh, 2,000 kilometers. And, and wow. along its length are obviously lots of villages and towns that would grow into bigger towns or cities. Mm-hmm. Obviously, from a transportational hub, that's what they're there for. That, that, that's where they the, the people go there to work and obviously to make a living and, and, and what have you. So it's a bit like right. the American Midwest, maybe like a Chicago. It, it, it sprouts from nothing within 100 years. It's enormous. And that's what Stalingrad was. So it, it went from being a, a kind of backwater transportation hub, mainly made up of, of wooden shacks, with the odd stone building that would be the civic buildings and the and the church and everything that probably mm-hmm. had a population of five to ten, then twenty, then twenty five, thirty thousand. By the end of the Russian Civil War, probably had a population of about sixty to seventy thousand. And wow. Stalin and himself had protected the city during the Russian Civil War. so by the time he took power, in the 20s, some clever local communist official who's running the, the city thinks, I know, let's name it after our beloved leader. And that's <laughs> in his good books. I mean, it, good move. Yeah. It, it's flippant, but it, the, the basics of it is true. So, right. We're called Stalingrad. But from the late 20s all the way through the 30s, it was earmarked by Stalin that it would be the first of well over several, if not a dozen, cities that would be. Uh, show cities, Soviet. Yeah. How, how a Soviet city could look if if it, right. it had the right wealth and the, and the population, the workforce came in, and so and obviously it's on the banks of the Volga. So by the time the Germans got there, they're looking at a city that's at least 25 kilometers long. It wasn't a typical city in in terms of a lot of cities are just this big urban sprawled mass in a in a big kind of almost a circular thing like like London is, but obviously it's split by a river. With Stalingrad, mm-hmm. it 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 was on the western bank mainly, primarily. Uh, right. and it, it stretched along that 25 kilometers like a ribbon along along the wow. border. And obviously there mm-hmm. are lots of points. There's there's landing areas, jetties, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, warehouses. And it was famously split into kind of you could you could kind of carve it up into three sections. In the south, there was the original Zaretsin. And that was was mainly, as I was saying, it's 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 wooden built houses, mainly two to no more than two or three storeys high Mm. streets. Uh, And that's where a lot of the agricultural workforce lived, because they're surrounded by hundreds and hundreds of miles of of, uh, Soviet farmland, the steppe. And then mm-hmm. in the center of the city, you've got the what we all see in photographs. You've got the brand new city that was built uh, in the right. late 20s and 30s. And that's the one with, it's got lots of boulevards, tree line boulevards, nice parks, mm-hmm. um, it's got department stores, but it's got these lovely new apartment blocks that they were building for the workforce uh, and if you were lucky and you're right in the centre, you would have one of the really, really lovely uh, uh, girder-reinforced concrete uh, apartment blocks that had cold and hot running water, mainline wow. gas and electricity. So you had to be one of the party elite or one of the technicians that were working in the third part of the city, which is in the north, which would become famous as the factory district. Mm -hmm. That was the area that had three huge factories, I mean, monumentally big factories that had been funded and built by American and French money in the 30s. And they were building farming equipment. And it was this farming equipment that, yes, they might export some of it abroad, but primarily it was going to be used by the workforce in Soviet territory to bring on this economic agricultural explosion. But the mm-hmm. war came along. And so, like a lot of other countries, USA, UK, and, and Germany, obviously, they turned these agricultural uh, factories and plants to be retooled to make armaments. So, the Germans are looking at a factory district that's turning out tanks, armored boats, yeah. armored planes. And it's got a steel works, it's got a chemical works. And that would be where some of the really fiercest fighting was towards the last two two and a half months of the battle so they're looking at this and they say, because it's solely elongated and long paul right. looking at it and thinking well i've had a really tough seven weeks <laughs> battling my way th- to get to this place by the volga right. if it hadn't been for my uh, aerial superiority battering Uh, a path through for my infantry and armoured units, I wouldn't even be here because the Russians are putting up, the Soviets are putting up a suicidal defence step by step. So he'd lost Mm -hmm. a lot of men. So he's thinking, can I capture this size of city and not only capture it, but hold it? And that's what he was expected to do. And he was on a timetable. Hitler had said to him, shouldn't take more than two weeks to capture this city. Uh, Get it done. So he wasn't going to... He wasn't, I, 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 doing my research, I wouldn't have him down as a, an ardent Nazi at all, but he was uh, a stickler for schedules. He was a stickler for orders. And yes. he'd been brought up in that typical uh, Prussian militaristic uh, way of being an officer all the way back to, from the First World War. And mm-hmm. he was going to follow the plan through. So he knew he had to deliver, even though he had severe doubts that he could deliver it.
0: Yeah, I would imagine if, if that had happened today, he could just whip out his iPhone, do a panoramic view and go, uh, excuse me, sir, there's just no I can maybe take it holding it, that's a whole nother conversation. Um, so I'm gonna ask you to to describe some of the more memorable parts of uh the Battle of Stalingrad, introduce some of the, the main people on both sides. But I came up with an idea last night, and this is probably not original, but but This is the impression that I got after reading your book. Let me see if I can do this now because it's off the top of my head. The Battle of Stalingrad was to the Eastern Front what the Eastern Front was to the war in Europe. Mm -hmm. It's going to dictate. It's going to send out ripple effects. It's going to affect Pretty much the whole theater. I mean, and I'm guessing that uh, both sides maybe sense this, maybe they don't. I don't know. But again, like you were saying earlier, Hitler has no idea of the number of people that Stalin can draw upon. And what I found out in your book is that Stalin has already been hoarding men. He's hoarding divisions. He's hoarding equipment. He's just waiting for them to kind of like, like you were saying earlier, you know, uh, run low on gas or lose momentum. And then you send your massive counterattack because uh, Stalin made a ton of mistakes the first year by attacking too soon. The Germans were still too too, uh, too strong, but now he's to a degree, he's starting to listen to his generals yeah. and he's got his men built up, but he's got to wait for the Germans to make the first move here.
1: Yeah, I mean, he uh, once they realised by I suppose uh, towards the end of July they knew mm-hmm. this is the this is the main German move. This is their big offensive. This is where it's coming. The mm-hmm. slights and the feints that we're seeing currently outside our defences in the centre of 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 the line. They're right. not going for Moscow. They're definitely going south. So as I said at the beginning, he's got to move troops down. And they're going to get there, but that will take time. So yeah. whoever's left outside the, uh, the 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 front lines that's protecting Stalingrad uh, has just got to try and hold the line. And that's where yeah. basically it's argued, and I'd probably agree, that Paulus had his best chance of getting the city into the city quickly and taking the city because mm-hmm. the that first week and a half two weeks of, of fighting say from from the 23rd of August is when the the Luftwaffe start bombing the city so you can say that's kind of when the battle starts but ch- german troops don't actually enter the city for 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 a week after that and uh, mm-hmm. but because he wanted to do it in phases take the city within his overall plan step by step district by district i think a more uh, if you know, again, it's. I don't mean to be simplistic, but I think a more dynamic frontline combat commander, someone yes. like Rommel, for instance, or Manstein, who would obviously mm-hmm. uh, try and rescue them at the end of the battle, Right. they would have had the the nous and the uh, energy to make up their plan on the hoof and not follow slavishly what Hitler had requested them to do. Right. Because the defences were really poor at that time. And some of the main uh, battles that you see right at the beginning, they are the most important ones because it slowed the momentum of the Germans getting into the city, gave the the defenders time to get more reinforcements in. And that saved the situation by uh, the middle of September, definitely. And and, and resulted in the fact that the, the Germans weren't going to take the city that quickly and therefore they were going to be in this slugfest for the next few months but yeah the famous parts are the very first i suppose sign that the germans knew they were in for a real struggle was in the south of the city where fourth panzer army were coming up and some of their infantry units were trying to take some of the big buildings that were in the southern part of the city and the biggest one was the grain elevator which Mm is huge huge modern building built at the time in the 1930s and only roughly a company of Red Army soldiers held the grain building, and, and they held it for nearly a week. And it was vicious, vicious wow. fighting. It took the best part of, uh, I think the Germans lost at least a couple of Italians, at least a couple of battalions and men just trying to take this uh, grain elevator from a company of, of, of Russians who, or Soviets who in the main died. I think, I think right. three or four of them survived. Uh, but that gave them a clue of, wow, this is a different type of fighting. And they are really putting up a, a serious fight, uh, yeah. room by room, floor by floor for this building. And that's what would lead throughout the rest. And then the next big uh, Russian, I suppose, Soviet uh, uh, counterattack was, but as I talk about in the book, by the time the Germans... Uh, did invest themselves into the central part of the city, where I was talking to you about all these lovely boulevards and parks and the main train right. station and the department stores, and that they they pushed the Russians back. Well, they thought they had to the river, and the, mm-hmm. some of the frontline German units were in the main ruined buildings now, looking over the Volga. And they're thinking to themselves, well, this is almost it. We've all we've been told throughout this whole summer. We get to the Volga. We've broken the back of the the Soviet army. We might we might actually win this thing, and yeah. that's where you get one of the first sizable reinforcements that are coming on echelon down from the north, that get to the eastern part of the Volga and are instantly ordered to get back into the city, to take take the city back from the Germans. And that's famously the 13th Guards Rifle Division, led by Major General right. Alexander Radimtsev. Hugely famous in the Soviet Union. Uh, huge figure. He's like, I suppose, the equivalent of George Patton uh, to right. Americans or, or Montgomery, is, is to uh, the UK. In terms of, he's just a very successful combat commander. Uh, he might be a lot junior to someone like Patton or Montgomery, but he shows that same kind of tenacity and willingness to 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 to, to be uh, energetic. And he takes his ten thousand men across in this suicidal assault across the Volga, very much like the opening scene from Saving Private Ryan, where they're landing on yeah. Omaha Beach. And uh, they incur a lot of losses. And, but he did retake the city, and I spent a whole chapter discussing that, how they, what they did and the, the casualties they suffered. And he took 10,000 men across on uh, 14th September. And by the mm-hmm. end of the battle, there was less than 220 of the original 10,000. Oh, my and, goodness. So that's, a met- yes. that's a metaphor for Stalingrad. That's not... Yes. His division. There were there were dozens of divisions similar. The average life expectancy of a Red Army soldier going into Stalingrad was less than for twenty four hours.
0: Right. Uh, I, I just have to say, real quick, to the listeners, we're we're doing obviously a very high level here, but you go day by day, hour by hour, and in some cases minute by minute, because you have some some sources that you were able to access. But um, yeah, just the sheer number of Russian, uh, excuse me, of Soviet soldiers that fell um defending either a building or just a corner or just a street or whatever but the thing that happens that I found so amazing was at some point Hitler says not one step back Stalin says not one step back mm-hmm. or I guess Hitler says do not retreat that's that's pretty freaking brutal I mean you're basically signing these guys death warrants but at the end of the day Stalin can and this sounds cruel Stalin can afford those deaths and keep fighting. Paulus cannot, but he's expected to by Führer, who is way, way far in the back, quite safe in his bunker.
1: Yeah, I mean, basically, uh, the one you're referring to with Stalin, that, that had come before the Germans ever got to Stalingrad, but that was during these these free, oh, right. the retreat that they were doing in front of the German juggernaut for our uh, beginning of the offensive. And that was the mm-hmm. 8th of July. That was Order 227, which is in itself is famous. And that's, that's Stalin saying, not one step back. It was primarily aimed at the officer corps, uh, right. because he wanted strong leaders. Uh, and they, it would be mainly officers that would be going into the... Officers and their senior NCOs that didn't deliver their duty... In the main, they weren't executed. They they were sent to penal battalions, and that's where you got the famous penal battalions came from around this period as well. Right. Uh, but you're right. We, we, with Hitler, it was all or nothing. He, they had to take the city. Uh, yeah. He's obviously in his headquarters. He was in Venezia, uh in Ukraine. That's where he was directing events. Mm-hmm. Paulus, and, until the very end, Paulus was never really in, the, in amongst it as a frontline combat commander. He was, he was generally at least 30 kilometers behind the front lines, directing operations. Uh, right. He trusted his leaders. And they, they, had, they did have a, the Germans had a very, very good uh, combat command structure. He trusted his divisional commanders to get the job done. And then that goes down to regimental commanders. But you're right. I mean, what I, my book is mainly, I do give the overall strategic picture but my mm-hmm. book is very, very much about the personal, and uh, and that lots yes. of research, new research, testimonies from both sides, uh, because I, that's what I that's what I thought is missing from all those books that you could buy about the Stalingrad uh, uh, right. battle. What I wanted to do was one of the key battles was this fight for the centre of the city, which is where we get this urban combat from, about room by room and the storm groups on the on the Soviet side as well. Um, mm-hmm. And I wanted to think, right, I'm going to drill down. I'm going to look at just two opposing units, elite units, that were there right from the beginning of the battle that slugged it out for the next four 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 and a half months uh, in the centre of the city and what life was like for them. Ordinary officers, ordinary men, just fighting and dying in that central part of the city. But giving the reader of, well, this is the overall view as we're going day by day of what's going on. So you don't lose track of the the bigger picture, but you get the human story. And that was more important to me.
0: Absolutely. And and, um, as a writer, I just want you to know that As the story is going on, yes, you're focused here, but like we were saying earlier, the ripple effects of what's going on every day, the Russians don't have – the Soviets don't have to win. They just have to not lose. And they keep doing that. They keep doing that. And you start to see Hitler – crack, you start to see Stalin trust more in his people and, and and realize, OK, this is going to work. We've been building up our forces. They've run out of gas. And uh, and again, I don't want to give too much away for the readers, but massive counterattacks are launched to the north and south. There's an attempted rescue by von Manstein, who uh, was able to capture the Crimea. So. Big things were expected of him. But again, at the end of the day, it comes down to two things. One, numbers, and two, and you do stress this in your book, and I really appreciated that. The Germans are there to fight, to conquer, and win, and take. The Soviets are there to fight, to defend, to live, to have children, and to yeah. carry on with their lives. Very different motivating factors during this war, during this battle.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, we, I, and I actually say it in the book, and I'm not getting political or anything like that. But sure, that that, that resonates even more today with what's going on in Ukraine. It's just that it, yes. the uh, the uh, the cast list has been recast. So you exactly. You know, the, the Russians aren't the, the heroic defenders anymore. They're the remorseless invaders, as the Germans were at Stalingrad. But no, you, 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 you're completely right. I think uh, in terms of, uh, yeah, I mean, what I, what I wanted to show was the fact that it's a colossal battle. these right. units are being fed in and then literally just disappearing. And I, yes. I just wanted, if the reader can look through my book, they will, they will see certain characters that I begin... At the beginning of the battle and they're there mm. right at the end of the battle and it's what they experience on both sides and I thought yes I talk about lots of uh casualties and horrific uh, incidents with loss of life but mm. it's good to capture because obviously they're the ones that survived that are telling the story and, and yes. that's how we know what happened and I wanted to capture what what they did as well, uh, from top to bottom, as in from commanders all the way down to grunts on the ground. Uh right. And that's where you that's where Pavlov's house comes in too, because that's what I I I looked at all the testimonies of guys that were in Pavlov's house that, that tell the true story rather than mm-hmm. the myth or the trope or whatever you want to call it. Right,
0: so I'm gonna first of all thank you very much. This book was amazing. The emotional roller coaster, the details, the fighting, um, and I'm gonna let you have the last uh, word. But I do want to. I I think the thing that impressed me the most was here's World War II. It's massive. Here's the Eastern Front. It's massive. I, I get all that, but I truly did not have a sense of scale. Mm-hmm. Until I read your book, I mean, again, a thousand planes for the German, millions of Soviet troops being massed uh, behind and to the sides of uh, yeah. Stalingrad. Right? I mean, the scale alone—well, almost makes it.
1: I was going to say, The statistics of the battle are—you are, are, right. are, look at them and you just rub your eyes because, I mean, yes, you got. Yes. I mean. A city that had, it normally had 400, roughly 450,000 civilians made up the city itself. Right. That that had almost doubled by the time the Germans arrived because of refugees fleeing from their advance. So you got well over 800,000 by the end of the battle, I think a lot of them did get evacuated. I mean, the, the, famously, people talk about Stalin said, we're going to fight for a live city, there's going to be no evacuation. But obviously, they did evacuate people as the battle progressed. Right. But you know, 64,000 civilians died. And by the time of the Soviet victory, at the end of January mm-hmm. forty-three, there was 9,700 plus people were living in the city that crawled out of the sewers or holes they dug in the embankment. Many wow. of them had been surviving eating clay in, in the river. The city itself, yeah. I mean, 90... is something insane. Over 90% of the city was destroyed. The Germans dropped 2.9 million artillery and and, and uh, bombs from the air on the city itself. Uh, there was 12% of civic housing left. Uh, right. 850,000 square metres destroyed in the factory district. I mean, it's just... I mean, yeah. you know, so that's why you can still see some of the ruins in the city. They've left them there uh, on purpose. But yes, the, the, they laid way. and again, that's a metaphor for uh, the, the the European side of of the Soviet Union itself. I mean, over seventy eight thousand towns, cities, and villages destroyed uh, during the Second World War. I mean, it's just wow. We yeah. in the West can't comprehend that kind of level of destruction.
0: Yeah, and you say this in your book. Um, Compare the casualties of this one battle compared to what the Americans and the British lost. I mean, it, it, there's just no comparison. They, the Soviets bled for their victory and they deserve uh, they deserve to be remembered. And I think that's what you're a part of what your book is trying to do is like, yeah, we have D-Day. We have uh, you know, we've got things like Dunkirk and Pearl Harbor and whatnot. But the Soviets also have their moments where they
1: I, I made a difference. I was going to the USA lost yeah. about 420,000 killed. Yes. Uh, the UK is about 450,000. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, at, if you look at, even, again, I'll, I'm only picking it because it's relevant. Uh, you sure. Look at the, many ethnic groups fought in the Red Army. Uh, Ukrainians had about 5 million fights throughout the war in the Red Army. And wow. 1.6 million of them died. And that's more than America, the United Kingdom and France combined. And that's just Ukraine. You, you could pluck out several yeah. ethnic groups. And obviously, the Russian total is massive. I mean, it's well over 10 million. Uh, 34 million Russians answered, 34 million Soviets answered the call during right. the Second World War. And like I said at the top of the program, that their losses were so huge during the war, they rebuilt the Red Army five times. That's because of the staggering. Kind of, it's like it's staggering exactly. You just can't comprehend that kind of suffering, and that's why. That's why really, when you go to the country, I mean, a lot of us won't be going there for the foreseeable future because of what's going on. But when you right. go there, and if any of your listeners went to Volgograd, uh, mm-hmm. you see these huge statues that dominate the landscape everywhere you go. Everywhere you go, right. uh, some of them are like fifty foot high, and right. The, Famously, the, the Motherland Cause, which is the top of the big hill in Volgograd, the Mameev Kurgan, that's more mm-hmm. than the Statue of Liberty. But they're there for a purpose, and it's to almost dominate your thinking that something colossal happened here. Yes. And you, you, and can't, it, you can't escape it.
0: Right, and it, and it changed the outcome. Uh, of the yeah. war overall. So, yeah, well, it's what
1: I try and I do a lot of talks in colleges and schools here. And what I try and say to them is you have to remember all eyes of the world were on Stalingrad at the time, because that's right. where everyone thought and what they were being told by newspapers and radio broadcasts. In you could be in Cape Town in South Africa, Delhi in India, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, London, wherever. Everyone, mm-hmm. day by day, were focusing on Hitler's huge gamble in the South and then to try and take Stalingrad. And that's why it resonates in the West so much as well, because we've been brought up with it through just looking through the history books of what happened at the time. Right.
0: Yeah, never underestimate a desperate people who are determined to live and survive. Mm-hmm. Um the human spirit it, it continues to shock me in a good way, and, it, and it's very inspiring. Uh, Mr. McGregor, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for this book. Trust me, readers, you will not be disappointed. The Lighthouse of Stalingrad, The Hidden Truth at the Heart of the Greatest Battle of World War II, and your other book, Checkpoint Charlie, The Cold War, The Berlin Wall, and The Most Dangerous Place on Earth. Mr. McGregor, thank you very much for your time today.
1: Thanks very much, and wishing all the listeners a happy Christmas.
0: Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 397, Prelude to the First Battle of El Alamein. When the news of the fall of Tobruk was given to Churchill, it came from President Roosevelt himself as the Prime Minister was in Washington so the two leaders could discuss how best to use American troops who were coming online in significant numbers. And like with Hong Kong and Singapore, Churchill was left bereft of energy upon hearing the news. What made him feel better, as he would later write, was FDR offering kindness in this moment. Quote, "...there were no reproaches, not an unkind word was spoken." What can we do to help, queried the president. Actually, a lot. As the summer of 1942 went on, Rommel was getting closer to the Suez. General von Paulus of the 6th Army was getting ever closer to Stalingrad, while von Kleist was making his way towards the Caucasian oil fields. But what lifted the spirit of Churchill was when he got Roosevelt to agree with him versus the American Chiefs of Staff. They wanted to send American boys to the UK, build up their numbers, and then, in the fall of 1942 or early 43, send them over in a cross-channel invasion, all to be called Plan Bolero. But the Prime Minister knew they, nor the Americans, not even combined, were ready for that. But how to pitch it to the wily and determined President... But not only was FDR looking to get into this war now that his resources were starting to grow, he also wanted to help the Prime Minister with his worsening situation in North Africa. So when Churchill pitched the idea, look, you've got young men training and you've got your special forces, i.e. the Rangers, looking like they're ready to go. But for both groups, the vast majority of them have not seen combat or seen the elephant, as the Rangers would say. So why test them in northern France, where they may fail and be pushed back into the sea? Besides, neither of us have near enough shipping for that. When you can send them to North Africa, they get to get some combat experience for themselves, while them landing at all may upset Rommel's plans, for now he will have an enemy in his rear. All to the good, yes, to which FDR agreed, much to the chagrin of his generals. This was Operation Super gymnast and had been discussed during the Arcadia Conference, but then pushed aside for Balermo. But now it seemed that was back on the table. On August 1st, 1942, a bit ahead of our story, FDR will send to the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff a memo of his decision. It was recorded thus. The President stated very definitely that he had made the decision that Torch, The landing of U.S. troops in French North Africa should be undertaken at the earliest possible date. He considered that this operation was now our principal objective, and the assembly of means to carry it out should take precedence over other operations. Indeed, even before this, there was concrete talk of sending U.S. troops and tanks to Cairo when General Ritchie lost Benghazi earlier that year. But again, the shipping was not available. Instead, General George Marshall, in still trying to satisfy the goal of helping the Allies in North Africa, sent 300 Sherman medium tanks and 100 self-propelled guns to Egypt. And the British knew this was a serious gift, as Marshall had to take the weapons from active units who were currently training with them. Even more, Roosevelt approved the establishment of HQ U.S. Army Air Force's Middle East with one heavy bomber, two medium bomber, and three fighter groups. These would take time to get into place, but it bolstered the beleaguered British. Next, FDR had General Maxwell, the head of the U.S. Lend-Lease Mission in Cairo, given the military status of Commander U.S. Army Force's Middle East Theater of Operations. This allowed Maxwell to yell at more people, which also sped things up on the military base. He was also sent additional engineer and logistic units to speed up the flow of supplies going to the British and Russians via the Red Sea and Persian Gulf. All this in response to the fall of Tobruk. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination, with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Back to the fighting in North Africa, the El Alamein line that Rommel had reached on June 30th honestly existed more in the collective British minds than in reality. As the South African official historians wrote, when the riflemen heard the suave voice of the BBC announcer reporting, that 8th Army had reached the Alamein Line, they looked around at the empty desert, indistinguishable from the miles of sand to the east and west, and commented, as only riflemen can, which we will leave right there. The most recent attempt to rectify this was done by Lieutenant General Sir James Marshall Cornwall, as there was a 40-mile or a 64-kilometer-wide gap between the coastline and the Katara Depression, Sir James decided to build three strongholds. The first, in the north, was near the coast and could hold three infantry brigades and a corps headquarters. Given its position, it blocked the coast road and the rail line close by. The second fortification, a brigade box, was done up at Bab et Katara, or Kapunga, so nicknamed by the New Zealanders who helped build it. But truth be told, this position, some 15 miles or 24 kilometers southwest of El Alamein Station along the coast, was only partially dug in, but no mines were put around it, which is odd as Kapunga sits on the barrel track that goes from Fuca to Cairo. Lastly, to the southwest of Kapanga, by about 11 miles, or 17 kilometers, was Nag Abu Duis, which sits just above the Katara Depression. Now, this was a fortified position, well, not really at all. The plans were made, a map was drawn on paper, but that's as far as this third and southernmost fort got, which was unwise, given that Rommel had, twice now, skirted around Ritchie's defensive lines. When General Norrie of 30 Corps arrived at the El Alamein area on June 26th, he set up him and his to defend the northern half of this defensive position. Overall, his area was flat and featureless, but only later would he learn to respect the few ridges and depressions around him, as they could hold men in tanks without anyone being the wiser. By now, everyone on the Allied side was guessing that when Rommel came, he would head south, cut across the desert, and then, once past El Alamein Station, he would turn north and cut the Coast Road. All Eighth Army had to do was stop him from doing this. But General Norrie was determined to stop Africa Corps if they chose to come along or just below the Coast Road. So he got Major General Dan Penar's 1st South African Division to hold the El Alamein Box, a.k.a. El Alamein Station. Specifically, the South African 3rd Brigade would hold the station itself, while 2nd and 1st Brigades were set up just below the southern perimeter of the station. Should Rommel try to drive his Panzers between the station and the Ruysat Ridge, some five miles below it, if he did, the triangulation of South African artillery units would give him a nasty surprise. Just ahead or to the west of the Ruwisat Ridge was the Deer El Sheen Depression, and there Nori had a fort built and manned by the 18th Indian Infantry Brigade Group from Syria. When the 4th and 22nd Armor Brigades arrived in the area, they were put in just behind or just east of the South Africans to provide defense in depth if needed. Using the Rue Ridge as a west to east divider of this area, the territory below the ridge would be shielded by General Gott's 13th Corps. This area was less flat with its escarpments, depressions, and hills, and overall, The land rose the more south one went, towards the Katara Depression. See episode cover map. The New Zealand 6th Brigade, rushed up from deeper in Egypt, were sent to Kapanga, a bit ahead or in front of the El Alamein Station, but to the southwest. Kapanga is also due south of Tel El Isa, where the most forward units of the 90th Light Division had been checked, by Allied artillery when they first arrived. The retreating New Zealanders were to join up with the 6th, and other New Zealander units were placed just behind this position on the Deer El Munasib Depression. To help out these defenders, 7th Motor Brigade was stationed just ahead of the New Zealand units by about 5 miles west by southwest of Kapanga. But below the New Zealanders was another massive escarpment, and below it would be Rommel's last lane, should he choose to come this far south. Just above the beginning of the Qatar Depression, there were three Allied forces, from left to right or west to east. They were the 9th Indian Brigade, the 5th Indian Division, and behind them, should all else fail, the 7th Armored Division. The only other major geographical feature not mentioned in this area is the Alam Halfa Ridge. The Ruizat Ridge is due south of El Alamein Station, but the Alam Halfa is about five miles southeast of Ruizat Ridge. On its far right end, but below it, sat the headquarters of 8th Army, where Auchinleck was. Just above it was the 50th Division of General Holmes' 10th Corps. The rest of the Corps was on its way east, but the 50th was told to stay and break into three artillery columns. Again, the idea being, should the panzers get this far, they might walk into a crossfire, one they would be unable, hopefully, to get out of. The first battle of El Alamein actually started off with the advantage going to the Allies. As the defending armor units were making their way to this new defensive line actually a cluster of defensive positions versus a constant line, they ended up traveling beside, and at times, within access columns. Naturally, the shooting started. But however it happened, by the time the defending tanks reached the El Alamein station, the Litorio Armored Division had lost practically all of its guns and most of its tanks. This was obviously all to the good and was unavoidable as they were all going in the same direction at the same time and heading for the same place, more or less. But it did mean that only the 22nd Armored Brigade Group was in place for the coming battle. On a lighter note, the 4th Armored Brigade actually got bogged down in the sand at Tel Al-Isa, uncomfortably close to the 90th Light Division, which is where Rommel wanted his forces to meet up. Fortunately, the 4th Armored got out of there just in the nick of time. Before the shooting gets started, it's worth noting that some historians have criticized Auchinleck for not telling 8th Army, at this point, that they had reached the do-or-die stage of their duty. As in, we stand here, we will not be moved. But that would fly in the face of his desire, nay, his order, that Eighth Army would become and remain a mobile defense, and that it would remain in being to remain a thorn in Rommel's side. And he was right to do so. If one needs it put more succinctly, the CNC issued the following to Eighth Army on June 30th. The enemy is stretched to the limit and thinks we are a broken army. His tactics against the New Zealanders was poor in the extreme. He hopes to take Egypt by bluff. Show him where he gets off. But Auchinleck wasn't the only one wearing his heart on his sleeve for this upcoming battle. For better or worse, Rommel would decide to attack the northern half of the enemy's dispositions, that being the troops under General norrie and he had read them the riot act. As in, this is where we stand until either they or we are dead. Period. This was contrasted by the likes of General Dan Pinar, who was openly saying the army should line up on the far side of the Suez Canal and fight there. On the other hand, he had already told his men to fight hard, to avenge, to brook, which sounds like, emotionally, Pinar was all over the place. And given what they had endured so far, this is not surprising. But it was General Gott that shook his men the most, well, those within earshot. He was telling people that the entire Middle East was lost. It was just a matter of when. Then he showed certain officers a plan to evacuate Egypt, which a military should prudently do, but you don't talk about it, and you certainly don't let on to the troops which just pissed off the New Zealanders even more. They were ready to fight and did not think much of Rommel's prowess, nor, for that matter, much of the British desire to give battle a mixed bag, to be sure. As much as Rommel embodied the supposed advice given by Confederate General Nathan Bedford Forrest when he said, in terms of battle, get their firstus with the mostus." The Desert Fox would plan more here than at the Battle of Mersa Matru. At first, the BBC gave Rommel pause when they reported on the vaunted El Alamein line, but then he was confused when his reconnaissance team reported on a concentration of troops at the El Alamein station, or Alamein box, and at Capunga, but little else. And as Rommel this time, was not simply going to go around the enemy, what his reconnaissance reports told him should be covered. He was told that the Indians were placed about four miles west of Ruisat Ridge, but actually were only two miles in front of it. But at least they got right that Norrie and his were in the north, while Gott and his were in the south. Next, Somehow, Rommel was told that 50th Division and not the 3rd South African Brigade was in the El Alamein box. But the most costly mistake made was when Rommel was not told of the two South African Brigade columns just below the Alamein box perimeter, nor that the 4th Armor Brigade was with them, creating a perfect tunnel of destruction should the Axis forces come just below El Alamein station. Which is where Rommel wanted to focus his main thrust. To be sure, Rommel had thought of driving south, but he believed that was going to the well one time too many. No, after a think, he would press hard between El Alamein Station and Ruizat Ridge in the form of the 90th Light and Africa Corps. And once they were past El Alamein, the 90th Light would turn north. To cut off the coast road, and the Africa Corps would turn south to deal with the supposed 13th Corps of Gott, which was not there, as the German reconnaissance had missed this. To either side of Rommel's thrust, the three Italian corps would stand and make sure of no counterattack. It was only a matter of time before the enemy would fall apart and then fall back again, which is when the Italians would rush forward and help Rommel push on. To Cairo. And yet, this battle would not be full of daring Axis thrusts and cowardly Allied retreats. No, Rommel's side would make mistakes. There would be delays, and the Allies would show themselves capable of going toe to toe with the famous Africa Corps. Postscript The BBC's broadcasts during the last two days of June were certainly in the service of king and country. They told of a solid line 40 miles long between the Mediterranean and the Katara Depression, one that had no gaps or ends for Rommel to try to run around. No, if he wanted Egypt, he would have to fight for it. The point is, their reports were so enthusiastic that Rommel put off his attack for 24 hours, to get a better sense of what was before him, although as we have seen, his reconnaissance units could have done better. As for C&C Auchinleck, he had fully recovered from the lackluster performance at Mercer Matrue. As he told his chief of staff, Dorman Smith, the British pride themselves on being good losers. I am a damn bad loser. I'm going to win. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So this will not be my last episode of the year. I think I can at least do one more, as long as I can squeeze it by the wife. Anyway, just wanted to... uh Thank a couple people. I'm going to try to do a better job of keeping up on this. So as far as my latest members, or I should say member, uh, Caleb Yeager from Star Idaho uh, is now supporting the show. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoy the membership episodes. I think there's 209 of them now, something like that. And as far as donations, there's Michael Fisher, who, besides donating, sent me a very lovely message that made my day. So, Michael, thank you very much. And I'd also like to thank... uh, Lamel Krim, if I'm saying that right, for his donation as well. So, again, thank you. It really makes a huge difference around here, and I certainly do appreciate it. Uh, I hope you all are safe. I hope you were good so Santa brings you everything that you want or or deserve. And uh, I'll see you again with the next episode as soon as I can. Take care, everyone.